out there and make things the way I see things, which is going to be different than everybody else. And you'll have something very unique for the, the newspaper. This is Big Lens Fast Shutters interview series, Time to Spare, with Revocal and Matt Cohen. For over eight years, Rhea and Matt have been discussing and helping others to become better sports photographers. In this series, they talk to other sports creatives about what they do, how they got there, and what they're working on. In this episode, Matt talks to Cooper Neal. He's a Dallas-based photographer shooting for clients like Getty, the NFL, ESPN, NBA, and the UFC. Here's Matt. This is Matt Cohen for Big Lens Fast Shutter. This is a new series of interviews we're doing while everybody is stuck at home. And we're going to be talking with sports photographers who we like and whose work we admire. And today is somebody who I didn't know about until this year. Uh, I don't know how that was possible. We have some friends in common and he does work that would ordinarily catch my eye. But today I'm talking with Cooper Neal. He's a photographer. He lives in Dallas, Texas. And Cooper, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do in sports photography and... I'm based in Dallas. Uh, I grew up in a small town in Texas, moved around a little bit, uh, went to college in Nashville, lived overseas for a little bit, and then decided I really wanted to pursue photography, specifically photojournalism, and moved down to Austin, Texas, got my master's degree in journalism. After that, moved up to Dallas, worked for the newspaper for a little bit, decided that wasn't really the path I wanted to take, and left there, have been freelancing full-time for the last eight-ish years, seven or eight years, doing a lot of sports. We have a lot of sports in Texas, so I I work for the NFL quite a bit, do quite a bit of work for Major League Baseball, been working for the UFC for about five years, and then do some other editorial-type work for the New York Times or ESPN or Getty Images, stuff like that. Yeah, I guess the the I'm trying to think of when it was, and I think it was the McGregor. Was it McGregor's last fight? I think that was the first time that I had seen your pictures. And it was it was really interesting to me because one of our mutual friends is Mark Rebellis. Mark's been on the podcast a bunch of times before. And I don't know, I consider Mark to be like-minded as, as in terms of just doing whatever to get the picture and and thinking, you know, beyond what the normal is and asking for forgiveness instead of permission, like that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. So it was weird when I saw your pictures and then his pictures from the same fight because it was kind of a role reversal. It was seeing him as the person that didn't have the access and it was seeing somebody else who did have the access. And so that's always really interesting to me. So I guess, can you talk me through what the assignment was? And like when you found out that you were going to have that kind of access, what kind of went through your head as you were planning that out so that your pictures look different from the person that didn't have the access, even though we both know that Mark is a great photographer and you know, certainly could have made the most of whatever access he was given. It was just where the chips fell on that day. So talk me through that a little bit. Yeah. So I started working for the UFC about, I want to say around five years ago. And the way I kind of got connected with them was I did a, a feature story for the New York Times on a fighter here in Dallas, followed him through his whole training camp, 
uh, spent quite a bit of time with him and his family, really kind of made it a, a story. And it did really well in the paper. It was one of their biggest projects for the sports section that year and caught the eye of some of the people with the UFC because they hadn't been doing that much storytelling with their photography. They had just been showing up, taking pictures of the actual fights, and then using those images on social media and their website and all of that. They were looking for ways to kind of make people more relatable. So they brought me in really to just kind of help with storytelling on some of their bigger fights. So I'll, I'll probably do somewhere between like three and six fights a year for them. Uh, and they'll bring me out and help me kind of share the story of what's going on from start to finish, either of specific fighters or uh, of just kind of that night in general and, and really make it more about the individual person than their performance, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So they'll bring me in because that's, if I would say I had any sort of specialty, I would say it's storytelling. Like that's, that's my bread and butter. That's what I love to do. Even when I'm going to a sporting event, like a baseball game or something like that, I'm, I'm trying to figure out a way to give it some sort of a narrative arc. Like I want to show it's a story from when the players show up to the stadium to the celebration at the end of the game. I don't want to just show like a handful of cool action shots because great but like it doesn't give you the full picture of what's going on the ESPN kind of saw that that was what my skill set is really tailored to and and have let me kind of run wild with that whenever they need something which is great I love it so my assignment that night there were I want to say three or four athletes that they were expecting to have big nights for individually and, and for the company as a whole. And so my job was to kind of shadow those four individuals and, and kind of round out what their story was from when they showed up at the arena to the end of their fights and the celebrations in the locker room. You hear storytelling, like that's like the buzzword, I guess. Hopefully maybe it's dying now, but everybody wants, you know, oh, authentic stories and whatever. I'm more interested in the the original story that you did on the for the paper on the on the fighter because I think storytelling means different things to different people. You can tell the story of a game, but it's it's not the same as telling a story like going and following somebody around outside of what they're doing. And so I wonder if you could talk about to have that time and to know like you're in the setting, right? Every picture that you make in the arena for the fight is going to say this was made out of fight, right? There, there's not, there's not very much you can do. Even the back room kind of stuff, the intensity of all of it is going to be more apparent that it's fight night. To me, the, the flexibility of following somebody that's not there, that's, that's where more of storytelling comes. So I guess if you could kind of explain what your thought process is going into the, the more straight up journalism side of it, and then what does it mean to tell a story of a night where there, it's, it might not be one story. You're following four different people. They're each going to have different stories. So how do you kind of arrange that in your head and go in there and make sure that you're getting all of the things that you need to get? That original story I did for the New York Times, it was a, a project that I came up with on my own and pitched to them. I mean, one of the, 
one of the reasons I left the morning news was I wanted to have more flexibility to work on these longer projects. Working for the, the daily paper, I would get four or five assignments a day. You have 30 minutes at each one. Like it, it makes it very difficult to do that kind of long form journalism that I really wanted to do. And so when I left, this was one of the first projects that I had done that I came up with on my own and I was able to find a home for. I worked with the, the fighter's name was Johnny Hendricks. I worked with him for somewhere between three and four months. And the way I pitched the story was, you know, he's, he's just a normal dude. He's a former college wrestler. He had, at the time, three daughters, was married, lived in the suburbs. He was an all-American wrestler, I think, three years. There's not a whole lot of career options out there for collegiate wrestlers. Like you can try for the Olympic route, but if you miss it, you gotta wait four more years to try and collect a paycheck. And he just kind of found out he was really good at fighting. He had like these two personas, Johnny Hendricks, the dad, who was like this sweet, adorable father that would play with Barbie dolls and dress up in pink with his daughters. But then he would turn into this other guy who would just crush people in, in fist fights inside of a steel cage. And so it was like a, a very interesting juxtaposition. And I thought that visually it would make for a, a unique photo essay because when you think of somebody that's a professional fighter, you only think of these people inside of cages that are either all tattooed, they must have some sort of anger issue, like their mother must have not loved them enough. Like, I don't know, a lot of stigmas on them that aren't necessarily true. And I thought that his kind of story and who he was outside of that was a good representation of fighters not being these caged animals that people associate them with. So once I approached the Times, they thought it sounded cool. I, I called up Johnny, who I'd worked with a couple times before, and he thought it was great because, you know, he wants people to see him as just a normal human being and not this terrifying human. I went over to their house, like had dinner with him and his family a couple times. He, he was coaching his daughter's youth soccer teams. I mean, just like doing normal dad stuff. So that was a, a big part of the story I wanted to tell. The flip side of that was also showing how dedicated these people are to their craft. And a lot of people think, you know, you just show up, lock them in a cage and they'll go at it. But he, he had a full training team, was training two or three times a day, six days a week for three months. Very high level athlete. I felt like people should give them the credit that they deserve in that. So really, I mean, I had these different points that I thought would be beneficial to illustrate to kind of round out this story of what it's like to be a professional fighter and then also what it's like to be a dad who's an athlete and just like what it's like to be a father of three girls under the age of five. Like there are a lot of interesting dynamics there. If you only watch the fight, you know absolutely none of that really just kind of trying to find a way to bring all of that together into one piece. And you can't do that just by showing up to a fight. Like you have to be able to invest the time to go spend with whoever the subject is and really get to know them on a, 
a personal level so that you can have that access and, and really be able to tell a full story of who they are. So that's kind of how that one came about. And then second part of your question, like how do I manage everything on fight night is first I do a lot of research. I figure out who the people are that I'm going to be working with, who their coaches are, because I've, I've been in the industry long enough. There's a good chance I've worked with somebody in their camp before. So finding out if I have a mutual connection with them, because that's a really quick and easy way to bridge the gap. I mean, if you're a fighter and, and you're about to go into battle and you're getting your hands wrapped, the last thing you want is some stranger with a camera, like getting all up in your face. So I'll always go in and introduce myself, let people know who I am, kind of make a little small talk for a minute right when they get to the arena, just so that they know I'm, I'm here for a purpose and I'm essentially on their team. Like I'm, I'm not here to make anybody look bad nothing is getting leaked to anybody because I've had people come up to me and tell me like, Oh, you know, our fighter has an injury. He doesn't want his opponent who's like two rooms down to find out. I'm like, don't worry. Like I'm not talking to anybody. Nobody is going to see the pictures. Like you're good. So just kind of reassuring people, letting people know who I am. And then, you know, just kind of following the mood in the room of, of each of the fighters. Some people get very anxious and just kind of sit in a chair and you're like, why am I doing this? Like, don't ever let me do this again. I don't want to fight. Like, what's going on? There are other people who are blaring music and just dancing. Some people will take a nap until 15 minutes before their fight happens. I mean, it's just all over the place. So you just kind of sit there and observe what's going on and then kind of take a breath and then figure out how the best way to illustrate that and have those moods come across in images that are, are an accurate representation of how these athletes are. I think, and then um, kind of go from there. Yeah. I think reading the room is, is really important. It's maybe something I don't talk about enough. It, it doesn't even have to be in the locker room or something. It could be on the field. Like if you see all the fans looking in one direction, like you need to be aware of those kind of things. You know, you don't have eyes in the back of your head, but you have eyes in the front of your head and you can take cues on what else is going on. So I think that's really important. And the, the part about assuring them that you're, that you're there to, you're not there to embarrass them. It's, it's kind of funny because the times where I have access, I'm the known entity. And so, you know, like when people see me, they, they know what I'm there for and I don't really have to explain stuff like that. But there's a lot to that, that interaction because the access that you had to the first guy was the result of having worked with him before. I'm sure there are people who are naturally whatever outgoing and connect. I'm not like that at all. So I don't know. I'm just guessing. But if you're not naturally like that, then you have to do the work. You have to make sure either they respect your work or they know you by reputation or they see that you're, you know, a caring person or, you know, something like that. But that connection between you and who you're shooting is really important when you have to develop it over a long period of time, but then I'm sure you had never, had you met Conor McGregor before? I had done a couple of his fights, but I mean, I've seen him maybe four times over the last five years. So there's zero yeah. chance he remembers yeah. who I am. Right, you're not known. Yeah, you're yeah. not known to him. So you have to establish that on the spot. And Yeah, yeah so that's I'll our... go up and, and introduce myself to his photographer, talk to his manager, some of the UFC staff that's in the room they know who i am yeah. because I, I see them a lot 
but it's kind of one of those things where even if I don't say much to Connor, the fact that his people are respecting me being right. in there, right. he, he is like, well, he must be cool. Like yep. if they're all cool with him being here, then I'll be cool. With right. So you're taking your cues from the room, you, you know, your connection with his people, and then he's taking his cues that, you know, they wouldn't have let you in the room if you weren't okay. And so yeah, everybody absolutely. kind of figures out a way through it. Yeah, interesting. Thing that I kind of stop, I guess, on your pictures, there's a glossy kind of quality to your pictures. And I think if somebody, you know, I don't know, I guess I get a vibe of the different people that I follow or the different pe people's pictures that I see. Your pictures seem very glossy to me. And I wonder if that's like something that you go for or coincidence of, you know, the last three months that I've been seeing your pictures or something, but I don't know that that's like my one word estimation of it. Um, is that something that's, that's, you know, planned out or is it just something that kind of happens? So when I, when I first started freelancing, I was doing a lot of work for Getty. I was covering probably 40 or 50 basketball game, college basketball games yeah. a season, working alongside the same people, every game, same venues, same seat. I really started forcing myself to try and see things a little bit differently, whether that's recognizing light in different venues and finding ways to shoot things and use the available light in a way that other people aren't using different lenses or doing something to make things look different from your standard pictures for the newspaper, your standard pictures for the wire. This is I mean, this is Cooper speaking, not Ryu or Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I I grew up looking at all the big sports magazines. I used to cut out the leading off photos uh, and hang them up on my wall. Like I've always been a fan of those big cinematic double page features. Yeah. And so I've always wanted to have one. You don't get those unless you're looking for them. Yeah. I've tried to position myself in places where I'm looking at things from a different vantage point than everybody else around me, but also trying to do it in a way that I can have a, a single picture that gives more of a story than just, here's a very close-up picture of a dude dunking a basketball. Like, you can have a very close-up, he might not have much emotion on his face, what can he do? But if you have that same picture pretty wide, you get the crowd all yelling, like it tells much more of a story and it has much more impact. Not saying that wider pictures are always better because you could have a really tight picture of somebody yelling after they scored a touchdown. The whole story is in the emotion in the face. I've really tried to recognize what those kind of storytelling pictures are and, and make sure that I feature those or make sure that I get those images into the hands of my editors because those are the images that are the most impactful for me. It's funny that you mentioned the the leading off pictures because I was incredibly motivated by those and and by and and really it shaped how I shot because I want to be a home run hitter. Uh, you know, I'm not there to grind out bunt singles or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, it's just like not interesting to me at all and Knowing that back when SI was, you know, SI and not whatever, whatever it is now, it was a big deal. It paid well, you know, getting pictures in there was a big deal. And I was going to games and Peter Reed Miller or McDonough or Broody or whoever would be there. And it was like, I'm not going to grind out a single into the magazine from this shoot. You know, I'm, I'm going to get somebody diving over a pile or I'm going home empty handed. 
And mm -hmm. that was incredibly liberating to me to know, you mentioned earlier the, the newspaper guys who have 30 to 40 minutes and have to do it four or five times a day. You know, I, I respect those guys. I know, you know, a couple of my friends do that. And the fact that they can churn out great work all the time is a credit to them. I don't, I, I can't do that. But to me, it was freeing to know that a, a bunt single wasn't going to get it done and a home run might not get it done, but chasing that home run is going to make me a better photographer. That's all I do now is, is, is home runs. Unless I'm there to like get a specific picture for a specific use or something like that. Like I'm not, it's not interesting to me at all. So um, it's interesting that you were motivated by that because I extremely was motivated by that. Yeah, if, um, if it you sucks have... because it's it's not really there anymore. Like you don't you don't have that. It's it's not the same. Like I don't even know. I know they have it in print. I don't know if they do leading off or whatever anymore. But it's what's the alternative or what's the analog to that? I guess it's like going viral on social media or something like that. Yeah, I mean, if if you have the opportunity and the flexibility to take chances, do it. There's sometimes whenever I'm working for different clients where you know they aren't going to pull pictures from a wire if I miss something. So I have to make sure that I get yep. every single thing. Like a couple of years ago, I did the NFL draft and I did it for the New York Times and I had a conversation with my editor ahead of time. Like, you know, there's going to be three or four people for Getty there. There's going to be three or four people for the Associated Press there. Like I can make the same pictures they're making, but they're also going to be a lot more of them covering things from a lot of different angles. Yep. Or... I can go out there and make things the way I see things, which is going to be different than everybody else. And you'll have something very unique for the, the newspaper. And if I miss something, you can still pull it from somebody else and it will be different than what I got. Yep. I have some clients that for different projects are very cool with that uh, because they, they know they have access to images from all of these other things yep. and they aren't hiring me to make those same things. They're hiring me to, to take a chance and put myself in a different position. And you know, in sports, like you can think you're in the greatest position in the world, but you can get blocked. Something could happen on the other side of the court or the yeah. other end zone. And, and there's nothing you can do about that. It's a lot of realizing, you know, you have the opportunity to take chances. And whenever you have those opportunities, don't play it safe, like come up with something weird and, and see if it works. Don't just do it at random, like make sure you think about it, give yourself a good plan put yourself in a place to, to be successful, but don't phone it in. Like you got, you got to take a risk every now and then. And, and if it pays off, it pays off big. I think the time that this kind of dawned on me was, I forget what year it was, 2008 or nine, something like that. That was the Rose Bowl. I remember it was the first time that I had been to a football game where there were assigned spots, you know, in the end zone. And SI had many. I, they might've had four, four positions or something like that. And I remember, I, you know, I just remember thinking, I, you know, like one of them is going to get this and the, the AP had multiple positions. And I said, one of them is going to get this. And, you know, I know what I do at that point, you know, I'm, it's the Rose bowl. I'm going to get, you know, crazy fan pictures and sunset and the, you know, the stadium itself and all of that. So when you, let's say you have that freedom, let's say you're going somewhere where you know that there's going to be wire coverage of something. What is your process then? Like you, you mentioned shooting with different lenses and different angles and things like that. Um, you know, I, you and I, you know, it's like in our DNA that we do that. 
what is let, let's say you're you're at the rose bowl and you see you know three spots chalked off in one end zone for getty or something like and and you're shooting either for them or you know let's say you're shooting for somebody else and so you're not coordinating with them um what would be your thought process at that point i mean if if i'm working for somebody i'll use the new york times as an example just because i know they have subscription to the associated press and getty they're hiring me to go out there and do stuff uh, and I know that they can pull those photos from the wire if they need to. I'm going out there and I'm looking for things that I don't think the wire is going to shoot. That and then things that I think are important that I can do individually better than they can. So whether that's doing fan pictures of people as they're entering the stadium, I can bring a light and do like some quick portraits. That's not going to be something that a Getty person does. They might just take some candids of some people walking through a gate and that's their fan picks. Yep. So I can Because they because that. they have to run and they have to run and file, go get yeah. you know, their the rest of their shot list and then file those and then go back out and get more. Yeah. So I can take that opportunity as something I can do pretty quick and on my own without an assistant or a team of other photographers. And I can give myself a couple extra minutes and make some nice portraits of fans. When I get into the, the stadium, I can go kind of feature hunt, look for interesting moments going on with fathers and kids or fans from opposing teams, just some, some interactions. Uh, I can go camp out on the field and wait for a specific player to come out of the tunnel or follow that specific player through practice where they might be more focused on getting a handful of different people. If I know we're writing about a specific quarterback or running back, I can really key in on them. I can play a little bit more with lens selection. If I have something super long, I could play with that, uh, shoot a little bit tighter or looser than normal, can play with some slow shutters, can't really play with flash during games, but during pregame stuff, I could use some hard camera flash. I mean, those are all things that anybody can do, but that's not stuff that the wire usually does. So I know I could do all of that stuff and I would be making pictures that are different from at least 90% of the photographers there. There might be another couple people there that are doing something similar, but I know just by doing those couple of things, I will have separated myself from at least 90% of the, the people in the building. 100%. And, and you, you know, a lot of that stuff you can do even before the game starts mm -hmm. or at halftime or something. And then what you're talking about is additive to the, to the shoot, not, you know, instead of. So I think that's really important. I think that um, you could go to a game and not even go into the, you, you could go and do what you're talking about without even a credential, you know? Yeah. You, yeah. You go to the tailgate. You can walk around. You know, a lot of these stadiums now are in shopping districts or whatever. So you just drive down there and you can get the game day experience without even putting on a 400 or, you know, a bib or, you know, getting into the stadium and all. I think that's really important. So the, this kind of leads into the next question because I asked my followers for questions of what they would ask you. And a lot of them end up being like, how do I get into this? What is your advice on, you know, career or whatever? And, you know, I'll ask you that you can answer, <laughs> you know, I have no advice as far as that goes, because I definitely did not follow a very traditional path 
to get into this and all of the traditional avenues that you would have in it are going away for the most part. People were talking about internships and whatever, and it's like most of those don't even exist anymore. And if they are there what used to be an entry-level job that somebody just repackages as an internship. But to me, it just ends up being do something different and get noticed. And if you took the initiative and went to a stadium on game day, made a, you know, a lot of really cool fan pictures and pictures of the stadium with people walking around in their crazy outfits or whatever, you probably would have a better day than somebody who just went in there who was mailing it in, you know, from on the field. So I don't know, I'm sure that that's a lot of what your advice was going to be. But if you have any kind of answer to that question, I'm sure that people would listen to it. First advice is, is don't look at the names of the teams. You can make phenomenal images from a, a high school football game. High school stadiums look like college stadiums but they give you better access than colleges or pro teams do. Nobody's going to hire somebody without some sort of a proven track record. Like you have to, you have to have the work to back up what it is you're saying you want to do. So find a way to go out and make pictures that you want to do on a, a higher level and prove that you can do it to begin with. And then you'll have, kind of a conversation starter. Like you can't, I couldn't tell somebody like, I want to go be a doctor. Nobody's going to hire me. I don't have anything to back up that I can actually do it other than me just saying, you know, I think it would be cool. So if you say you want to be a sports photographer, you have to have work that shows that you're a sports photographer and that people should hire you. If you say, I want to go to an NBA game, nobody's going to be like, oh yeah, sure. That sounds great. Like we haven't seen your work. We don't even know if you can work a camera. So you have to figure out kind of how you can make those images and, and set that baseline and then just start improving in every game. Think of a different picture you want to make or force yourself to come up with something new for your portfolio that is different than the stuff you had done the week before so that you're constantly building a platform that you can use to, to give to editors or uh, give to teams. You could, I mean, there's, there's so many avenues you could take, but you have to have the work to back it up. So just find any way, any team you can go out and take pictures of, make good pictures, and then show people that you can do it. It's really funny. I mean, we may as well not even have had a guest on this one. Because uh, this is, like we say this, like, I swear to God, every every episode. I started out shooting high school basketball, high school football. I get, I don't know, I'm trying to think of it, how often I get Instagram messages about credentials. Probably twice a week. It comes down to what you were talking about as far as, like, can you do this? You know, why are we letting you in? What do we get out of it? we're not selling a ticket and we're letting somebody in for free. What, what do we get out of it? And the, the only way that you can show them that if you don't have a job, who's arranging the credentials for you is to go out and show them that you can do something that somebody else who's doing this can't do. So I think that's really good advice. Um, I think the only other thing that I had for you was I was looking back through your Instagram because I hadn't, I guess the McGregor fight was in January or something. I think that yeah. was, yeah, when I became aware of you and I hadn't looked back before that. And I was kind of stunned that there's not much, there's not really very much before that because you nuked your Instagram and started over. And I thought that was like 
not a good idea. And, but, it, <laughs> but it was like not a good idea in the way that made me like perplexed, not, not like, oh, that guy's a dumbass or whatever. It was like, why would he do that? So, you know, for me, the avenue for my success in photography was through social media, right? Rodeo is not big enough. And so the only way that I can make a living doing this is by having a direct connection to the, you know, between the fans and the brands and the cowboys. Um, so I guess uh, my social media is like my, it's, it's my portfolio really, you know, it's, it's what it, it's not just the pictures, but it's the interactions, it's the comments that, um, you know, a cowboy who got face planted telling me the story of how he had to go to the hospital and get sand, you know, removed from his eyeball with tweezers <laughs> or something like that, you know, like I could never delete that kind of stuff because uh, that's part of it for me, but it's definitely, you're not a social media, you know, that's not like integral to what you do as it is with me. So I don't know, tell me about that. It's just one of those ideas that I can't get out of my head, but is terrifying to me. <laughs> I just wanted to do something different. I had done it before, like I did it maybe four years ago because social media has always been one of those things I don't really like, but I know that I have to do it. So when I first got Instagram, I was in college or grad school and it was just a hodgepodge of horrible pictures I took with like the iPhone 5 or something <laughs> like that. And then I moved throughout my career and was really moving into more of being a professional full-time photographer and had all of these old pictures that I didn't really want to be up there. And so I was trying to come up with a way to make it more of a professional thing. And so I just wiped everything and basically started over. Had like a, a specific way I was posting images, like everything had the white borders around yeah, it. Yeah. And I did that for a while, got tired of that. And like there was one year, I think I posted like 16 pictures on Instagram. And I was like, I, I was just burnt out. Like, I I'm not a fan of social media. Yeah, so it I, sucks. I, yeah, I was just like, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to do this. But like, I know it's something important. And so my wife told me, she was like, well, if you just delete it again, then you're going to have to post something or else everybody's gonna think you're like some weird loser who only has two pictures on his social media so I did it again I, I just cleared out everything it started over and I told myself I was gonna post a picture every day for like a year or something like that didn't have to be a new picture I was going through all kinds of old stuff and I did that for close to two years and then just got tired of it I, I don't want to have to like give myself a time to schedule a week's worth of social media posts. Like I would way rather use that time coming up with stories to pitch to editors or actually going out and shooting something or even doing like stupid stuff like sending out marketing emails or doing invoices. Like the not fun stuff was more fun than planning yep. social media. Yep. So I ended up wiping it again. And this was, I guess, sometime last year, last spring. And just said, you know, screw it. I'm just going to use it as kind of like my own visual journal of like the things that I go and do. Like I'm not going to focus on making sure I post every day or every other day. Whenever I have something cool that I want to share, I'll share it. Whenever I don't, I'm just not even going to worry about it. 
cleared out everything. I had a bunch of, I was getting messages or like comments on my pictures. Like, who is this person that Instagram randomly made me follow? I'm like, no, you've been following me for like five years. I just deleted everything. It's not a new person. I promise. I've just been looking for different ways to make it not feel like it's work because I mean, that's like, it's social media. It's not supposed to be work. Like I don't, I don't want to feel pressure to do stuff for social media all right, now I'm feeling attacked. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, I just deleted everything. It was like, I'll, I'll make it into whatever I want it to be. And then whenever I get tired of doing it this way, I'm sure I'll delete it again and come up with a, a different way to see things. Yeah, it's interesting because it, it's, um, it's a whole different use case from, from how I use it. How important is it though to like, I mean, you have clients but you're freelance, right? So you still have to hustle to some extent to to get. So my whole business came from social media. The extent of my marketing is like sending out books and, mm. you know, once in a while I have an idea and, you know, I'll send it out somewhere or whatever, but I don't, everything I do is all marketing stuff is on social media. So do you use it for that? Or is it just something out there so that if somebody's searching for you, that they can see something good or? I mean, honestly, the main reason I use social media is just so that I can keep my work in front of editors' eyes. Like, I I know I have a lot of editors that follow me on social media, a lot of people that I work with on a regular basis, and I want to be able to show them the work that I am enjoying doing so that I don't just fall off of their radar. So if, if I have something that I'm proud of and something that I would like to do more of, I put it up there and hope that the people who are hiring me to do stuff see that and are like, oh, Cooper did a really good job with this thing. He would be a good fit for this project. Let's bring him on to do that. Nice. Yeah, that's um, an interesting way to do it. Probably more conventional. I, I, I don't get much work from Instagram. Um, I've had maybe two or three clients that had seen my work on Instagram and contacted me via email after that but the majority of my work is from me reaching out to brands or newspapers or magazines and me telling them hey this is who I am this is where I live this is what I do and this is why I think I would be a good fit for what are you doing or Mm -hmm. this is a story I think would be a good fit for your magazine and trying to get my in with them that way yeah, that's great. That's that's a healthier way to do it than whatever it is I'm doing right now. <laughs> um, okay, well, I, I definitely appreciate you taking the time to to talk with me today, and uh, we actually did get more of the questions answered than I had planned on. We don't we don't do much of the career planning kind of stuff or whatever because both of us are really non traditional. So I just don't know. I you know, and and I think with this you know, everybody kind of resetting and waiting for when the starting gun is going to go off is making it even more impossible to give any kind of advice because who knows what's going to come after this. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, thanks for that. Um, So tell us where we can find you. Cooperneal.com. C-O-O-P-E-R-N-E-I-L-L. The two L's always get people. And then just Cooper Neal on social media, Instagram and Twitter. Don't expect a lot of posts, obviously, <laughs> but I'm semi-active on both, I guess. Yeah, active enough to keep it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for your time. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely.